This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom as we pursue his word. God, would you open your word to us? Would you help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear? May we take in the words of the teacher today and reflect on them with our own lives in view. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the last 50 years, we have seen the rise of technology, medicine, economics, politics, and community in extraordinary ways. We have supercomputers in our pockets, right? These little things. Supercomputer in our pockets. We've got diseases that once plagued societies and ravaged them are now overcome with little capsules, right? Little capsules that we ingest in our mouths. My favorite being the Flintstone gummies. Amen? Those things are FDA approved, so they've got to be the solution to all things. So you're sick, see the Flintstones. We have these little pieces of paper we, call, we carry around called cash, where we pay for different things. But what's been really interesting is that cash has now become something that's actually replaced by no longer a paper thing because that's an annoyance. We carry around these little plastic cards where we swipe things, and we even have these currencies that are all transferred and done through computers. Money that we have, but is not physically upon us. Political votes are counted via these machines that look like giant air conditioners that take in these pieces of paper and actually are able to identify what dot is marked in what specific situation. Or that could be for debate, too. People are communicating over thousands of miles and oceans through these little screens where they get to talk to loved ones, like family in different locations. People are launching their campaigns for presidency on Twitter with 140 characters or less. We truly live in ways that would have been unthinkable 50 years ago. To those that preceded us in just the last century, they would look at life and see that life is vastly different today than what they would have experienced. While everything may seem like it's better to us and like we have more that's in front of us, we have to see an alarming reality that represents statistics today. According to the Gallup poll, only 23% of Americans would say that they are living with satisfaction. 23% of Americans say that they are satisfied with their lives. That was just taken January 1st of 2023. Just a mere six months ago, 23% of people here in the United States said that they enjoyed their life. That means that up to 73% or just about three out of every four people would say that they're not satisfied with their current living. As we come to this new sermon series, we're about to dive into a book that was written long ago and resounds with a melody that is quite familiar to us today. 
One pastor said that when we approach books of the Bible, we sometimes have to do quite a bit of work to show the people in our churches how to bridge from life in that audience's setting to where we are today. We have to construct things like the Golden Gate Bridge with all of its majesty. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is not a Golden Gate Bridge. It is a two-by-four that we drop across the little stream and provides us with a very clear, easy reality that's right in front of us. It's a book that may have been written long ago, but is strikingly relevant to us in our modern context. So today, we're going to start this series looking through the book of Ecclesiastes. My goal for today is to at least give us the background of this book and then to show the structure of where we're going to be and introduce the major question that the author is going to drive home through his study for us today. So as we come to Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, absolute futility, Every, says the teacher, absolute futility. Everything is futile. What a way to start, huh? You guys encouraged? <laughs> Everything is futile. What do we do with this? Well, first, let's identify the author of this book. As chapter 1, verse 1 describes to us, this book is written by a person who's called the teacher. Some have seen what comes right after that, where it says, Son of David, King in Jerusalem, to be an identifier to us that this could have been written by Solomon, who reigned as king and followed as the son of David in his place. That could absolutely be the author of this book. But what we don't see explicitly through the rest of the writing, through the 12 chapters that are here in Ecclesiastes, is any other identifier that this is indeed Solomon. It's best for us to take the first title of the author, which is the word, the teacher, okay? In Hebrew, this is the, the title, Goaleth, which means uh, it refers to someone who gathers or assembles, one who likely held a teaching office that was public, okay? So this is uh, written to us from the teacher who is going to be describing to us a number of observations and questions in life. So could it be Solomon? Sure. Could it not be Sure. We're going to go with at least what the text says and say it's the teacher. <laughs> okay. So then there's a question of date. When was this book written? And here we go with further lack of clarity. This book written in a time that we can't clearly identify, but scholars are up for debate. They say it could be anywhere from the 10th century BC all the way to the 7th century BC, which would be consistent with at least the idea of Solomon's authorship or the teacher's authorship. Uh, it's hard to put an exact date to it, but we can at least tell from the, the original languages that there is a similarity with a particular time period that's close to the 7th century BC. So uh, we'll go earlier rather than later writing in this as much as we possibly can, but no exact date. And if you're like, where are we getting with all this? Hold on, fasten your seatbelts. We, we will get there, okay? So the author is the teacher. This book was written to us before Jesus' time in a way that represents early Israeli life for us, okay? The genre of this writing, this book is what we call wisdom literature in the Bible. I love that there are ways that we can pursue wisdom. Uh, this is going to be my very first time preaching through a wisdom book here at Hebron Church of Hope. 
And wisdom literature has some unique features that are important for you to see and identify in order for you to understand this book going forward. So there's things like poetry. Anybody like poetry? Okay. Anybody dislike poetry? Okay, yeah, there's more hands there. (laughs) Okay, so poetry often uses what we call metaphors or images to represent to us some sort of reality. Okay, so there's going to be lots of metaphorical images that are presented to us. And wisdom literature also includes what we call discourse. Does anybody know what discourse is? That's speaking, okay? So there's lots of speaking here, okay? And there are times where wisdom literature also includes things like narrative, stories that we're going to see developed where there is a setting, a conflict, there's a climax where the story has to turn, there's some sort of resolution in a new scene. Now, as it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes, We're not going to see a ton of narrative, but we will see a lot of speaking and a lot of poetic imagery, okay? So we have to understand some of the structures behind Hebrew poetry and then some of the ways that we would at least identify discourse. So when it comes to poetry, there's a unique literary feature we need to keep our eye out for. Ready for this? If you're taking notes, it's called parallelism, okay? Say that 10 times fast, right? Uh, Anybody that can... The Lord bless you. (laughs) Parallelism. What that means is that there are often uh, either doublets or triplets of lines that all are supposed to be reflecting a a certain type of structure. So I'll show you today how there's actually both of those features in verses 4 through 11. But we are going to look at things like parallelism, where we may have one thing said with something that runs alongside of it that could be a contrast. It could be positive and negative, or it could be similarities in parallelism, okay? So parallelism is a feature for us to know. And you may be thinking, I came to church for a sermon, and I am getting a lecture right now. Hold on. We will get there. (laughs) Promise you. (laughs) Okay? So genre is important. As it comes to the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to argue for you that there are essentially three different parts to this writing. The first is what we call the prologue, okay? That is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That's going to be where the author is going to introduce to us the idea of his writing. Then from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 12, verse 7, we are going to see the author's main argument or the body of what he is trying to communicate to us. And then finally, in chapter 12, starting in verse 8, All the way through 14, we're going to see what's called the epilogue, the end of his writing, his conclusion. So in light of this, this is primarily a speech that's delivered from the teacher to the group of people that he is addressing, which would likely be Israel at large, to help them to understand an observation that he is making. In the body of the writing, we're going to go on a journey where the teacher examines life and what is significant. So if you've ever come to church and thought, what is important, what should find significance or value in my life, this book, Ecclesiastes, is going to be really relevant to you. I hope that that's everybody in the room. It's important to note that there's going to be a pattern of alternating where the teacher uses uh, a report where he observes and then confesses what he knows by faith. So he's going to say, this is what's happening in life, and this is what I know to be true about relating to God. So that's going to be a pattern that's going to be developed throughout the entirety of the writing. Observations on life, what is true by faith in God. 
Okay, observation of life, truth in God. He's going to address subjects like, if you're ready for this, we're going to actually preach on things like work. Okay, your work, how do you work? He's going to talk about things like wealth. How do you use your money in a way that glorifies God? Um, Wisdom, what is wise, what is unwise? And pleasure, what is desirable and what is not desirable? We're going to see a pattern of sayings around some phrases that repeat like this. Everything is futile. Okay? So we'll identify what that means today. And even another phrase that's used 28 times throughout these 12 chapters, which is under the sun or under the heavens. Basically, the teacher is going to point us to two of, real, two of life's realities. The first is that everything is fleeting, uncontrollable, and ungraspable. Okay, so everything is fleeting, uncontrollable, and ungraspable. And the second reality that he will show us is that while everything we have under the sun seems like this, it's truly a gift from God, and it is something that we should enjoy. So everything's fleeting, but everything's a gift from God. Now, does anybody have a little bit of conflict when it comes to your mind in those two statements? How can everything be fleeting and yet enjoyable? Now, this is actually a pattern that's been developed from the early pages of the Bible. So let me just give you a little bit of the holistic picture of the Bible here. Flip your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Okay? Genesis chapter 1. What happens in Genesis 1? Can anybody tell me what happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Creation, right? Everybody whispers creation. Okay, so God creates the world. Okay, what does he do in creation? What does he create? We say the world generally, but let's talk about some specifics there. Stars, the heavens, the skies, okay, the oceans. Everybody would appreciate the ocean right about now, amen? Yeah, Uh uh-huh. Okay, he creates like animals, even those creepy crawly things he creates, right? How does God describe all of what he creates? What does he say about his creation? It is good, right? Not just the idea of like, that's good, but like, that's very good, okay? It's complete. It's whole. And then he creates humans, right? Now, of humans, God says what? They are in his image and likeness. So God has created all of the world. He, he did so by speaking it into existence. He creates all that we know, and then he, he takes us and he forms us from the dust of the earth, and he creates this man named Adam. And Adam represents God's image and likeness. He is far superior to the rest of creation because he represents the picture of what is like God. And the scripture at least tells us in Genesis 1 that he created humans. He created them male and female, right? So he creates us with two genders, male or female. That's it, right? So male or female, he creates us in his image, in his likeness. And we are given a command from God in Genesis chapter 1. Does anybody know what that command is? Fill the earth, subdue it, right? Be fruitful, multiply. Right, so what's uh, there, what will become more clear in Genesis chapter 2, is that means 
that while the earth is filling and populating with creatures, we are to fill the earth and populate it also with humans, right? So babies, yay, right? Here at Hebrew Church of Hope in the last year, we have done our job of filling the earth and subduing it with babies. We are at seven, there's about to be eight, and there's a ninth on the way here in the church. So yes, be careful of the water, okay? <laughs> we are filling the earth and subduing it here at Hebrew Church of Hope, <laughs> and we are unashamed of it. Right? Uh, praise God. <laughs> it's great to see new lives. But anyway, we see at least Genesis 1 and 2 describes God creating, and that is described as good. Okay? Remember Ecclesiastes. We're going to see this development. God, what he makes, what he gives to us is what is good. Okay? Genesis 3, what happens in Genesis 3, friends? The fall. Okay, what happens in the fall? Let's be a little bit specific with that. It's not the time of year, right? Contrary to those of you that like to watch the leaf peeping, it is not that time of year. Okay, what is the fall in the Bible? Mm. Man rebels against God's commands. Okay, so remember, God gave Adam and Eve a command. He gave mankind a command, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it. He told them that they were to exercise dominion over all of creation, that this was good. They had one negative command, and that negative command was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And God told them that the day that they eat of it, they would die. Okay? So Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to this slippery little snake, okay? He comes into the scene, he deceives Eve, and he tells him, did God really say that? And Eve's response is, God said that we should not eat it or touch it. So she has an exaggeration of what God has said, and then she communicates this with the serpent. The serpent then leads her to take this fruit where she eats of it, and then Adam also eats of it, and they are... Their eyes are opened, they see their nakedness, they're ashamed, and they hide from the Lord. And the Lord comes out, and he calls out to them, and he's looking for them. He knows where they are, right? But he's looking for them. They're ashamed. They're hiding. And in this rebellion, as they come out, God makes it clear to them that there are consequences for their actions. Now, here's the grace of God. They didn't die in that moment. But death began for them in that moment. What God made perfectly in the image of himself in humanity now would have an expiration date because of their rebellion against his commands. And that rebellion set in decay. They were cast out of the garden. So not only were they going to die physically, they were no longer going to be in the presence of God. And there were some specific things that came as consequences in light of the fall. Does anybody know those consequences? Cursing the ground, right? So you're going to work and toil and labor over the ground. Adam did not have to work hard beforehand. Right? He, he, pain and childbearing. Sorry, Cordy. <laughs> Sorry. She's like, that's too soon. Understood. Understood. <laughs> pain and child. Sorry, Kaylee. <laughs> Um, pain and childbearing, okay? There's going to be pain and childbearing, okay? What else? There's another consequence for the relationship between the man and the woman. Yeah, 
Right. So the, the woman's desire is to be to rule over her husband, and she's going to be annoyed by the fact that her husband has to lead. Does that like, sound like marriage at all? Right. <laughs> Anybody want to confess right now? We can get it out of the way. We can repent. We're going to take the supper. This is your time, guys, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, so there's this dynamic of relational turmoil that happens where women want to rule over their husbands, and husbands are going to be passive in the way that they lead their wives. And even though passivity led to the fall because Adam should have done his job in leading his wife well, right? That, that's all coming to the surface here in the consequences. And there's a consequence for the serpent. What's the consequence for the serpent? That slippery little snake. You guys are really great at talking loud. The air conditioner is going. Somebody give it to me. Crawl on his belly. He's going to slither on his belly all the days of his life. There's going to be enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman. He will bite the heel of the seed of the woman, yet the seed of the woman will crush his head. Right? Now that's a gnarly storyline. Okay? In light of all of this, that gives us this picture that good can exist with futility. Okay? So, this idea that Ecclesiastes is going to drive out to us that everything can be futile, that is the sense of everything can be um, fleeting that it can be uncontrollable, that it can be ungraspable, can also coexist with this reality that everything is a gift from God. That is essentially, guys, the condition of the world. Everything seems uncontrollable and ungraspable, yet everything is a gift from God. So I hope you're excited now to read and study through Ecclesiastes. We're going to spend about, I think, 18 Sundays in this book looking at it diving in, trying to see the journey that is before us. While futility and curse are there in Ecclesiastes, I want to just point you guys to this ultimate reality, that the end of Ecclesiastes is not about futility and curse. It's actually about right standing with God. Ecclesiastes 12 ends by showing us that everyone is going to give an account to God the creator and judge of the world, that there will be those that stand right with him and those that stand against him. So as we go on this journey of Ecclesiastes, we're going to be going into what's like a three-floor home. We're going to go in on the first floor. We're going to hear the news that everything is futility. But don't worry, we're not just going to stay on the first floor forever. We're going to look at the second floor where we see that everything is a gift from God. And ultimately, we'll arrive on the third floor as we build what the book builds in this giant crescendo where we see that everything has eternal significance because everyone answers to God. So Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. What do we learn? Well, really, it's not so much what we learn. It's a question that I want to leave you with today that comes right from the text, and I want you to soak on for today and as we go through this book, it's really this. It's what, where do we look for our significance? Where do we look for our significance? In light of that, we can look for significance in all of the things of the world and miss the point. Significance, as I'll argue through Ecclesiastes, really comes in knowing God and being known by Him. Knowing God 
and being known by him. So we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 are going to represent one point, which is this question that the, the teacher is going to bring to us. And then we're going to see his observation in verses 4 through 11. So let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? So the first thing we see in this passage is the question, the great question of life. What is significant? What brings us gain? What does a person gain for all of his efforts? Remember back to Genesis chapter 3, the curse of mankind, right? We were laboring and toiling for our work. And part of that curse includes the reality that we are going to labor and toil for that which God has set us on the earth. So all the days of your life, here's the good news for you. You're going to work. You're going to work hard, right? And our retired folk are like, thank goodness that that day is over. It's not done for you, friends. It's not done. The Lord still has work for you to do. But here's the reality. We have to work. We have to work. And the, the question that we do in our work, that we raise in our work is, what gives us gain? What gives us gain? What brings us life? What brings us joy? What brings us a sense of being complete? And I think this actually comes to some of a modern application for us. It's really a perspective on working. So I want to just set for you now a perspective that I'm going to continue to build on throughout this entire book, and it's the Christian worldview on work. Okay? So how do people today think of work? What comes to you like, if you're going to pursue a job, what's going to drive you to take that job? Just lay out the top three things for me. Okay, I heard somebody say money. That's probably one of them. Am I going to make money? Okay, yep. What else? Love for what you do. Okay, love for what you do. Money and love for what you do. Okay, anything else that you might think? Status, okay. Am I going to be able to maybe, like, gain prestige or climb steps? Grow, okay. So growth, money, in love for what we do, okay? Powers, okay. Oh, hours, oh, okay. That's a little different. <laughs> Can I have the freedom to do what I want to do when I want to do it? Right? So if we take those four qualifications, we see that those could all represent things that are indeed good, right? Like, I don't think anybody would turn down working less hours and making more money, amen? That would be enjoyable, wouldn't it? Um, here's the reality. That's not necessarily the case for most of us, right? We don't work less hours and gain more money, but it may lead us to something that we think of when we are trying to make decisions. I think Kelly highlighted one that's the most important that I would hear in the day today. It's that you got to love what you do, right? You got to love what you do. Now, I think that that's somewhat, like, yeah, commendable. Um, it might be something that we could admire. But I want to just help us see that biblically, we don't need to love what we do. One of my favorite questions that I often get asked is, how did you become a pastor? How did you become a pastor? And I go, well, let me just tell you, I didn't grow up in the church, first of all. I, I was 16 when I became a Christian. 
I went to church with my uncle who I thought was weird, and he looked like Chewbacca. Okay. Um, so already we're 0 for 2 on considerations and qualifications as it comes to me being uh, a, a pastor. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I didn't really feel like I had outright Christian examples in front of me. But when I did become a Christian, I can tell you that prior to that life, I loved business. If you guys didn't know this about me, I, I, I really loved business. In fact, you asked my dad a little bit of this story. Um, in high school, I was president of a club called DECA, uh, which is a business like administration and operations focus for high schoolers where they can go in and learn business skills and then apply it to the collegiate level and then into the world and practices. Uh, I actually was the president of that organization. Uh, I became uh, part of what was a school-run business where I was the finance president and took uh, different records of what came in and what went out. We created a, a water bottle where we sold it to, uh, sold investment stocks to different people within the school. Uh, after we completed our sales, we had a 500% return to our investors. We were very successful at what we did. I loved the idea of making money before I met Jesus. And even when I did meet Jesus and became a Christian, part of my outlook on work was much the same. I'm going to go find a job where I can make money and I can have a lot. My plan was to become a financial analysis. But I made a commitment. My commitment was I was going to study the Bible for one year. And after studying the Bible for one year, I would then go on to the business world where I would go and wreck havoc and make money. Okay? Well, you can imagine how that went, right? Because six months into studying the Bible for a year at a Bible school, it became very clear that I cared about people, about the Word of God, and that I wanted to devote my life to serving the Lord in the local church. I was overwhelmed with this desire to do these things. And, and I had this great tension in life. How do I make money and then serve the local church? And as I started to read the scriptures, I heard things from Jesus' mouth like, the root of all evil is money. And that money led us to great temptations that would often lead us away from the Lord. That we can't have two gods, one being money and one being him. And I was tormented with this idea. How do I do what I want to do, what would bring me joy, and then honor God in what I'm doing? Now, this was at least the decision that I came to. As the Lord led me, I don't think this is necessarily a decision for everybody. But I realized very quickly that I couldn't do both of those things in the ways that the Lord had wired me. There was an overwhelming desire to serve as a pastor, and people around me kept saying, you should really pursue serving the Lord in ministry and not going to school for business. And I thought that they were all crazy. My senior pastor, when I was in high school, said in front of our entire church body, this guy's going to be a pastor, and he's probably going to take over for me. And I thought, you're full of it. How could that be? That's not going to happen. I mean, ultimately, he was right. I did become a pastor. I didn't take over for him. It wasn't really what the Lord had and for my life. But there was a clear calling where God led me away from the world of business into a world of serving him. And I was really excited about this when it became very clear and apparent. I went to Cedarville University, and I took a class on pastoral ministry with a local pastor whose name was Craig. And you want to know what the first thing Craig said to us in pastoral ministry class was? This was it. This really motivated me to continue on in ministry. He said, if there's anything else that you can do 
in the world as a job, as a career, even if you have a hint of liking it, do it and don't be a pastor. Motivational, right? Motivational. And at the time I thought, man, what a way to deflate a room of guys that are really excited about serving the Lord in the local church. There is nothing that I would rather do with my life than serve the Lord like I'm serving him right now. There's nothing. Nothing I would ever want to do. I can't picture going into business right now. One, I just realized my administrative skills are just not as good as I thought they were. (laughs) So I can't do everything on my own. I need to have a team of people around me. And in the business world, you got to be cutthroat, and I just can't cut people. I care about them too much. There's nothing I would rather do than help people to understand the Bible, understand God, understand his purposes of redemption, serve the local church in every capacity, spend time with people like you. There's nothing I would rather do in my life. And when I heard that advice from Craig, I thought that he was crazy. But I can tell you now that 10 years into pastoring in two different church contexts, I can see more clearly now why he gave that advice. It's because being a pastor takes labor. It's work. Put work into my sermons, work into spending time with people, work in making sure that I, I don't say things that are too offensive to people in a way that would make them stumble. Work on myself to address my own sin, my own wrongdoings, my own shortcomings. There's a lot of labor that it takes in, be, in being a pastor. And sometimes people think that your job is just Sunday morning for an hour or two here or there. Or sometimes they think that you really just don't know what you're talking about. Being a pastor is laborious. There's nothing I'd rather do. There's no way I would rather serve the Lord. But the worldly perspective on jobs is that we must love what we do and that if our job doesn't bring us happiness, we should just leave. There have been plenty of hard moments in the life of our church where it would have just been easier for me to go, you know what, forget this, see ya. (laughs) But I really believe the Lord's called me to be here, to keep me here as long as he wants me to preach the gospel and, Lord willing, die doing it. Now, you may not be in the same place that I'm in, but I want to at least let you know that the Bible has some things to say about our perspective on work and labor, and primarily it's this, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard because of the fall. Work is going to be difficult. What's most important is providing for your family and doing everything you do to the glory of God. Friends, if there's two things that you can take into consideration with your, your work life, it's this. Provide for your family and do everything you do for the glory of God. Paul, in the New Testament, says of those who don't care for their family that they're worse than unbelievers. We need to care for the people that God has entrusted to be in our families. This could mean that you go to a job that you're just not that thrilled about, earn a wage, and take care of your family. You could do that. It may not be enjoyable, but it might be just what your family needs. 
Your work is not the only thing of significance in your life. It's not the only thing that provides you with worth or value or, or meaning. But it certainly does help. So don't stay in a job where you're not happy, but don't just leave a job because it just seems hard for the moment. It's going to be hard. The second idea there is do everything you do to the glory of God. Maybe we need to change our perspective from being in a situation where we go, am I happy to how can I bring God glory here? So there have been a few jobs in my life that I've worked while being a pastor that have made me go, why in the world did God have me here? Rachel says this often. She doesn't know how I was able to manage a bookstore and not get fired. (laughs) I worked in a Christian bookstore, and there are people with lots of opinions that come into Christian bookstores, okay? There are Christians that come into Christian bookstores with lots of opinions, okay? (laughs) Um, Like, one of my favorite things that people used to ask me, man, I wish Josue was here right now. He would totally, Josue worked for me while I was at the bookstore, okay? And there was this one question people would come in and they'd go, where's your Bibles, okay? If you walked into this Christian bookstore, the first thing you run into is a wall full of Bibles, okay? So when they go, where's your Bibles? I'd be like, for real? Right behind me, okay? What they really meant was, where's your King James Version 1611 Bibles? Because the rest of those don't matter. Because they're not God's Word. And oh man, did that get me fired up. (laughs) And, you know, I'd often remind people that King James wasn't exactly notorious for his piety. Nor was was the Bible actually written in Old English. And, uh, those became great talking points. Or they say, like, they say things like even pastors that I would have come into the, the bookstore and go, oh, well, I deserve a discount because I'm a pastor. And I'm like, that's cute. I work here, okay? <laughs> that's not going to happen, right? But there were many times where I looked at that job and I said, you know what? I love the stuff I'm around. The people sometimes, mm. you know, it was the worst. If you've ever worked in retail, the worst thing that ever happens in retail life is you close at 8 o'clock and somebody comes in at 7.59 and they slow shop for 35 minutes looking for something that they don't even know that they want. Okay? Don't be that person, guys. Don't be that person. That's the worst. You're like, man, you know what? And, uh, to be a manager of that bookstore, I had to work a mandatory 45-hour minimum, often turning into 55 or 60 hours on top of church ministry, and I would had to go and close the shop, make sure everything was set up, and then be ready to get up to go to church at 6 or 7 a.m. the next day. I hated the 759ers. <laughs> In the Lord. <laughs> I loved them, but I didn't like what they were doing, okay? <laughs> But that was it. I I often would go, how in the world am I working here? This does not bring me happiness. But you know what it did bring me? Encounters with people who truly needed to know the Lord. Our bookstore was right next to Guitar Center. What a difference of worldview. We got guys that are ready to shred the gnar next door, playing on their death metal music, right? Enjoying themselves up. And then we've got like Caleb bumping in the background the Christian bookstore. Light and darkness, right? 
Man, there were so many times I would go outside just to get like a, a snack from the Christmas tree shop that was right next to us, run into one of the guys working for the guitar center. And I can tell you, there were two guys that I made meaningful connections with and shared the gospel with. And I just thought there would have been no way, no way that I would have ever had that opportunity. I didn't love it, but the Lord used it. Maybe we just need to change our perspective sometimes when it comes to work. The great question, where do we get our significance? Well, this leads to the teacher's observation, at least his initial observation that we will continue to build on through this book. Two things come from verses 4 through 11. The cycle of people and the cycle of the natural world. The cycle of people and the cycle of the natural world. Look at verse 4. A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. And down at verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. There's, it has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. The cycle of people teaches us a few things. First is that generations come and go. Have you ever noticed this? That every generation of people thinks that the generations that are older than them or younger than them are foolish. Have you ever noticed that? Right? I mean, I'll just be honest here. I think my little brother Logan is weird. Okay? He's 17. What he dresses like, what he thinks is cool, I'm just like, I don't know, man. That's not me. But he also probably thinks that me, being a 30-year-old, that I'm old-fashioned. Okay? They're just two different worldviews that are at play here. And you're probably laughing because you know of our at least seemingly minor age differences. You may be even thinking, like, I'm 50 or 60, and the way that I grew up is way different than the way that you grew up. We look at younger generations and sometimes go, what could they offer? What do they know? John Mayer, he wrote a song that's called Waiting on the World to Change. Any of you guys know John Mayer? Okay, he's actually a local boy. He's from Glastonbury. Okay? Um, John Mayer, he wrote the song called Waiting on the World to Change. I think that he has got a false ideology in his song. What he says in that song is basically that there's a generation that was before us and that our generation is going to be the generation that brings change. Right? Because they got it all wrong, the previous generation. We're going to get it all right. Is that not the same argument we make in every generation? The guys before us, they got it wrong. We're going to right the ship. That's a lofty aspiration, but Ecclesiastes and world history tells us that while some change is going to come, we have a similarity to the generations before us. We live and we die. Our lives have expiration dates. We come and we go. Our experiences even leave us desiring more, right? Where it says in verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. Our experiences may be enjoyable, but they often lead us to wanting more. Have you ever enjoyed a beautiful sunset? People stop on Route 66 up there at the top of the hill, Columbia, going into Hebron, Big Sky Farm, right? They like to stop and look and watch the sunset. They capture it in. 
But here's the reality. The sun rises and sets every day. And we can look at that beautiful sunset and say, that's amazing. Or we can just become numb to it and just go, yep, there it goes again. Rachel and I went to Ireland in 2018, and I remember going to the Cliffs of Moher. And I thought that it was going to be this earth-shattering experience for me where I was like on the Cliffs of Moher going like, wow. And it was really cool. But I wasn't as moved as I thought I was going to be. And it may have been because Rachel was really anxious that somebody was going to like push me over because I was wearing a Martin Luther shirt in Catholic Ireland. Right? That, <laughs> probably not the right thing to do. Um, there were big cliffs. It was quite the scene. And now, if I pull it back up in my mind, my memory, and I look back on it, it was truly majestic. There's nothing like it in the world. But I was standing there one day looking out and thinking, there's got to be more. We're always looking for the new thing. Look at verses 9 and 10. What has been done will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. How can anybody say, look, this is new, right? We often hear of new inventions. They're not actually really new inventions. They're often adaptations, like your cell phone, right? The software update. Oh, my Lanta, right? How many versions of the iOS are there now? 17, right? We have to keep improving. It's updates. It's tweaks. It's not really new innovation. But we also learn that the world around us comes and goes. The sun rises and sets, verse 5. The wind goes where it pleases, to the north, to the south, verse 6. Verse 7, the streams flow where they will flow. The reality is is that there's a cycle within life, a cycle in the natural world, and a cycle of humanity. It comes and it goes. So where is our significance? Friends, today, let God's Word ask you and your heart that question. Where do you find your significance? Is it in the fleeting things of the world? Or are you looking for significance in God? There's only one person who's eternal. It's God. And we, by faith, get eternity with him. So are we laboring this side of heaven, looking for his wisdom, what matters most, and enjoying the gifts that he has given us? So while it might seem like everything's futile or that it's uncontrollable, ungraspable, that it's fading away, God gives us good gifts. The question becomes, do we enjoy them in their proper place under the submission of life in God? I hope that that question drives us as we study this book and it becomes a question that you think of in every area of your life as we observe the journey of the teacher, the journey that we'll walk on in the next 18 or so Sundays. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. I pray that your word would continue to drive us and motivate us to live for your glory. May we learn to hold on to what is eternal in you, to enjoy what is temporary, and to find significance in knowing you and being known by you. In Jesus' name, amen.